Would you like to take a seat? Um, wonderful. It's so great to see you. Thank you for being here this evening. This is uh, week two of our two-week series on dilemmas about sex. If this is your very first time here, we do not talk about sex the whole time, uh, but lots and lots of people have been asking recently for more teaching on this whole area, and so that's what we're doing with what we did last Sunday and then what we're doing tonight as well. Um, if you missed uh, last week, and we did the first in our two-week series, um, do have a listen to it online. It's been really encouraging, actually, through this week uh, to receive loads of emails and have various conversations with people about how they were helped by it, how they were challenged by it, but encouraged in all sorts of ways. Sadly, um, the recording last Sunday evening didn't work, and so on Monday morning, I had to repeat the entire sermon all over again, uh, just sat in the room at the back there. So um, if you do listen to it online, it may not sound quite like a sort of a live sermon. It'll more sound like sort of story time with Jago, but um, uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it too. Um, so please do press record this time, Ben. Thank you. Um, if you were here uh, last week and you thought it was quite a long sermon, which it was, uh, today is probably going to be possibly even slightly longer. Um, so uh, do prepare. But I think it's a really important topic uh, for us to be thinking about as we think about homosexuality, particularly tonight. And I think it's really important. I've even made a handout, and there's various people on the, the hosting team, if you could just head around, and you don't feel you have to take notes, uh, but if it would be helpful for you as we think through this whole subject of homosexuality, uh, if it would be helpful to take notes, just grab a handout. That'll help you see where we're going over the next 40 or so minutes. Um, and there's pens there as well if you want to take notes, because I'm just aware it is a, it's a topic that lots of us are wanting to think through. And so the handouts are coming around, and do use those if that would be helpful. So let's get cracking, as well as getting that handout, if you want to grab a Bible that you should find at the end of the pew and turn there to page 1148, page 1148, and uh, I'm going to start by the passage in 1 Corinthians 6 that we finished with uh, last Sunday evening, which is 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 9 to uh, 11. So just three verses I'm going to read now. We're going to look at a few others over the course of the evening, uh, but top of page 1148. Uh, let me read it, verses 9 to 11. <clears throat> Paul says this. He says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, please would you help me now as I speak? Lord Jesus, please would you help us all now as we think on this? Jesus, we come to you and we say we need your help and we depend on you. We thank you that you are the one who washes us, who sanctifies us, who justifies us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you might work amongst us now. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen. Now, last week, I finished by saying that the sexual revolution 
It looks to all be about freedom, yet it ends up mastering us. Whereas Jesus looks to be all about restriction, with the Bible's teaching that sex is to only be in marriage between husband and wife. That looks like Jesus is all about restriction, but actually he ends up being the one master who brings freedom. Now, to buy into that view, it may seem a huge challenge as we think about those of us who are heterosexual in orientation. But what seems to be nigh on impossible is to believe that that can be true for those of us who are homosexual in orientation. And yet what I want to try and do tonight is to think more closely on this topic of homosexuality. And so as I did last week, can I just start by a few words sort of of introduction. Uh, First of all this, I'm going to say four things by way of introduction. First of all this, I am aware I am speaking as a married heterosexual man. I am not preaching from personal experience on the issue. I have not experienced being attracted sexually to someone of the same sex as me. So just as I said last Sunday, if you were here, please, please, please forgive me if I say anything that is blinkered by me speaking from my particular reference point. However, as I also said last week, I am trying to, to teach what the Bible seems to be saying on this issue. So I'm trying to, just as I said last week, I'm trying to sit under the authority of the Bible and let the Bible judge me, rather than me sitting above the Bible and judging it. Second sort of point of introduction. I am aware that tonight there are obviously going to be people here this evening who are gay. Both regulars in our church, some of whom I know and have chatted with, but maybe some people here tonight particularly visiting because I'm speaking on this topic. And so if that's you, if you are homosexually oriented, I want to say first of all, thank you so much for being here tonight. Because for some of you, that may have taken courage to come along this evening. Uh, If you have had a good experience of HTC so far, I do not want to sort of go and mess it up now. And so please hear this, you are welcome here. Whoever you are, whether you agree with what I'm about to say or not, you are so welcome here at Holy Trinity Clapham. And those of us here who are heterosexually oriented, as we think about homosexuality tonight, I think we just need to try to begin to imagine some of the experiences of a gay person, feeling different from others as a teenager. Perhaps feeling embarrassed by it, trying to force yourself to like people of the opposite sex. Or thinking through the whole gender dysphoria issue, am I in the wrong body? Perhaps receiving abuse or mocking or being marginalized because we're gay. Not knowing whether to keep silent, to bottle it up or to talk about it with others. So all of us, we need to recognize that there has been so much hurt caused in the past, sometimes by Christians. And so as I speak, and in any conversations that any of us may have at the end of the service or later on, please let us be as compassionate and thoughtful as we can possibly be. Third introductory point. I think we need to recognize what is not up for debate in Scripture. And it's this. Being someone who is same-sex attracted, who is gay, who, is, who has a homosexual orientation, however you want to describe it, 
that in itself is not a sin. You are no more godly an individual if you are of a heterosexual orientation. I don't know whether people are born gay or not. The nature-nurture debate, it's hugely complex. Scientists still debate whether there's a gay gene or not. Uh, Personally, I do know a few people who testify to God changing their heart so they've moved from merely being same-sex attracted to come to feel attraction for those of the opposite sex. But I also do know someone for whom they thought that change had happened in their life but then they came to recognize they were just as exclusively homosexually oriented as before. What I am definite on is that there have been some dreadful examples of people being forced into conversion therapy to try and change their sexual orientation. And being forced to do that, that is dreadful, it is abhorrent, and it is wrong. The kind of sexual reorientation program generally happens because people mistakenly think that you are more godly if you are of a heterosexual orientation. And that is not true. Some of the most godly people that I know and I respect are people who are same-sex attracted. The question up for debate is not to do with homosexual preference or orientation. But rather, the question that is up for debate is about homosexual practice. So Premier Christian Radio, they recently ran a, uh, they hosted a debate with this title, How Should Gay Christians Express Their Sexuality? And really, I think that is exactly the key question. How should gay Christians express their sexuality? Is it by remaining celibate, which would be the more traditional teaching as understood in the Bible, or is homosexual sex Is it legitimate in faithful same-sex relationships? That's really the big question. And then the fourth point of introduction, and if you haven't realized this already, then you're probably living under a rock, but um, the fourth point of introduction is this is a deeply controversial issue. It is a deeply controversial issue in society at large and in the church today. And really, actually, it causes so much division amongst Christians, but it's ironic, actually, if you just think about it for a second. If we zoom out um, just for a moment, if we don't just focus on sort of the last 10 years of Western history, but actually, if we focus, if we zoom out and we look at the big picture, then actually, the Christian view on homosexuality is possibly the least divisive of all topics amongst Christians. Because if you just think about it, think about the big picture, all branches of the Christian faith throughout history, the history of the world, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, all branches, until about 10 years ago, would have understood and agreed upon what the Bible said about homosexuality. Take loads of other issues, take gender issues, women in leadership, take charismatic gifts, even take justification by faith, those things, they have been hugely divisive over the centuries but not homosexuality. Every part of the church very united on their view until now. And now it is seen as the number one topic of debate. And so right now, as I try and explain this subject, I know that there will be people here who disagree with what I say. And I understand that. And please hear again, you are still very, very welcome here at HTC, even if you do disagree with what I say. 
But what I'm going to say, I believe for a reason, and I've done quite a lot of thinking on this subject, both a short dissertation when I was back at Theological College and plenty of reading and research since. I'm not saying that I've got everything fully understood. I haven't. I'm learning. I may have got some things wrong. But what I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and explain as best I can what I believe from Scripture and why I believe it. Okay, that was the introduction. Okay? You ready? So, um, if you look at your handout, if you've got the handout, we're going to try and do three things this evening. First of all, A, we're going to look at the explicit references to homosexuality in the Bible. There aren't loads of them, but it's a good place to start. What do they say or what don't they say? Then B, we're going to look at the broader arguments that people give if they want to say nowadays that we should affirm homosexual sex in faithful same-sex relationships. Do these broader arguments hold up? And then C, we're going to look at some of the pastoral implications of all this. And really, I think that is the most important thing. A is going to take about 15 minutes. B is going to take 10 minutes. Uh, C is going to take about 15 minutes. So let's get going. Are you ready? So let's start with the explicit references to homosexuality in the Bible. Uh, The first one is not even really worth looking at. Uh, It's what took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's Genesis 19. It is the first instance in the Bible of an explicit reference to homosexual behavior, but it is an act of homosexual gang rape, and no one is suggesting that that should be permissible. So let's just move straight on and go to Leviticus. Um, Leviticus, there are two references to homosexual sex in Leviticus, and I'd love it if we might turn to the first one. Uh, Leviticus 18, so that's page 121 in the church Bibles. Just turn to page 121. And uh, it's at the bottom of the page on page 121. Leviticus 18 and verse 22. 22. Uh, Page 121, right at the bottom of the page, it says this. It says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman that is detestable. Now, this section of of, of Leviticus, it's known as the Holiness Code, as it gives lots of details about how God's people are to live holy lives. And there is no question that these two verses in Leviticus, they are negative towards homosexual sex. But really the question is, are these verses still relevant to us today? You know, we're New Testament Christians, some people might say. The Old Testament's irrelevant. Is this relevant to us today? I think there are three reasons why we cannot just ignore what Leviticus says. First reason, we can't just throw out these verses because they are Old Testament and we're New Testament Christians, we're much more chilled out now. We can't do that because Jesus didn't. Jesus refers to Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. He refers to it more than, uh, more than any other verse in the whole of the Old Testament. Jesus does not throw out the book of Leviticus, so why should we? In fact, all the New Testament writers, they turn to Leviticus, they quote this holiness code when they're giving instruction for godly living. Paul does it, Peter does it. Second, you might go, okay, well that's fine, but we don't obey lots of other things in the Old Testament, such as sacrificing two pigeons, not eating prawns, not wearing mixed-weave clothing. So how come we still have to hold on to this one about homosexual practice? Well, the answer is that Christians have always seen the Old Testament law split into three categories of law. Ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. So the ceremonial law, that's all about the temple, all about the sacrificial system. We say that has been fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus, he is the temple where now we can meet with God. 
Jesus, he is that perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. So the ceremonial law, that no longer applies to us. Jesus fulfills it. So there's no need to sacrifice two pigeons this Sunday because Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice once for all on the cross. Jesus fulfills it. Then there's the civil law. The civil law, that is no longer relevant to us because those laws, they are culturally, uh, culturally specific laws to the people of Israel in their particular setup. So that's why, for example, the death penalty no longer applies today. And it's why uh, you and I, we can eat our Thai king prawns, we can wear our wool and cotton blend Christmas jumpers at the office Christmas party with total freedom. So that is okay because the civil law doesn't apply anymore. And then the third category is the moral law. And the moral law, that is true for all people at all times and in all places. It does carry through from the Old Testament to the New Testament. For example, do not murder. And these verses about homosexuality, they are part of the moral law. They come in a whole block of moral law teaching, this holiness code, and so they are relevant to today. But the third reason, and perhaps the most conclusive of all, is that the New Testament, it does reiterate and refer to these particular verses in Leviticus on homosexuality and refer to it in a number of places as we're going to see. So we can't just say, it's in the Old Testament, forget about it, because these exact verses are referred to in the New Testament. So, let's turn to the New Testament references now. And you'll see the next one up on the list, um, number three, is uh, Romans, Romans chapter one. So I wonder if you might turn there now. Uh, Romans chapter one, page 1128. Page 1128 uh, in the church Bibles, Romans chapter one, and verses 24 to 27, page 1128. Now, the context at the beginning of Romans, if you don't know, uh, is that Paul is showing, in the first three chapters of Romans, he's showing that every one of us should naturally face God's judgment. So he talks about the Gentiles, non-Jewish people first, then he talks about the Jewish people second, and then he puts them all together, Jew and non-Jew, that is everybody, all of us. There's no one who is righteous, not even one, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3. And as part of showing this, that no one is naturally righteous, he says this. Look at verse um, 24 of chapter 1, bottom of page 1128. He says this. He says, Therefore God gave them over in in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So, there's a lot there. Wrong sexual practice, according to these verses, it includes both heterosexual sex outside of marriage. That is what verse 24 is saying. And then homosexual sex in verse 26 and 27. Female homosexual sex, verse 26. Male homosexual sex, verse 27. Now, those people who want to say that God is affirming of homosexual practice today will say, hang on a moment. These verses, they are not about faithful same-sex partnerships. They're about homosexual excess. Or they'll say this is about exploitative homosexual sex, perhaps between an older man and a younger man. And I do think that that is probably true. However, 
I don't think that the original teaching of the church should be overturned because of it. And here's the reason. Really, it hinges on what is meant by these phrases, natural and unnatural, that you'll see in verses 26 and 27, if you look there. Here's the question. Are those verses saying that homosexual sex is wrong when someone who has natural heterosexual desires, unnaturally for them, start having homosexual sex when they are not actually oriented that way? And is it therefore saying that there is nothing wrong about two homosexually oriented people having sex together as they are operating in a way that is totally consistent with their own sexual nature? I don't think that is what it is saying. When Paul, you'll see in verse 26 and 27, when he uses the word natural and unnatural, he is not referring to natural sexual orientation. He's rather referring to the natural created order of this world. And the reason we can be clear on that is because throughout this section in Romans 1, Paul is constantly referring back to Genesis 1 to 3, the creation story. So if you look at verse 20 of chapter 1, you'll see there he says, for since the creation of the world. If you look at verse 23, there are five words that he uses there that are the same Greek words that are used in the Greek translation of Genesis 1 verse 26. In verse 25, he talks about the creator. If you just go on down, verse 25, he talks about a lie. 27, he talks about shame. The sentence of death he talks about in verse 32. Those are all echoing the fall in Genesis 3. So the reason that same-sex practice is being rejected here, says Paul, is because it goes against the divine design of God in the natural created order. That divine design for men and women to come together sexually in marriage. And yet I've got to say, I quite enjoy Romans 1 because there's actually a sting in the tail. There's a sting in the tail for any one of us who's sitting here sort of in self-righteous judgment on homosexuality. For just as Paul says in verse 20, if you look at verse 20, he says, those who refuse to acknowledge God, those who engage in sexual immorality are without excuse, he says. You've just got to read on to chapter 2, verse 1, and he uses exactly the same phrase, without excuse, again. But this time he uses it for a very different group of people. Just look on to chapter 2, verse 1 over the page and see what he says there. He says, you therefore have no excuse. You're without excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. So I think it's really helpful to see that for Paul, self-righteous judgment of homosexuality is just as sinful as the homosexual behavior itself. And then finally, in this first section, there are two passages that have a list of actions, list of characteristics contrary to God's will, and they include homosexual sex. And I read one of them at the start, 1 Corinthians 6. So maybe turn back to that again, if you would, page 1148. The other um, a couple of verses is 1 Timothy, but let's just turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 6 page 1148 again. And you'll see there, in that bit I read at the start, end of verse 9, he talks about men who have sex with men. Now, there has been debate over exactly what these words mean that have been translated men who have sex with men. Again, some people will say that they're just referring to exploitative homosexual practice like rent boys or same-sex prostitution. 
And that the idea of faithful same-sex partnerships, that did not exist back then. So the Bible does not speak into the rights or wrongs of modern faithful homosexual partnerships of today. But in my view, that view does not hold true. Let me quote the theologian and scholar N.T. Wright, uh, just to summarize this. He used to be the Bishop of Durham, as you probably know. Uh, This is what N.T. Wright writes about the idea of faithful same-sex partnerships. He says this, I quote. He says, this is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato, other ancient writers too. The idea that in Paul's day... It was always a matter of exploitation of younger, women, younger men by older men, or whatever. Of course, there was plenty of that then, as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of options. I think we have been conned into thinking that this is a new phenomenon. And that was what N.T. Wright says. Now, certainly... There are all sorts of other Greek words that Paul could have used if he was wanting to describe here just exploitative homosexual relationships. But he didn't use any of those words. Rather, what Paul did was he invented a new word. The word is in the Greek, arsenokoitai. And it's made up of two Greek words. One word meaning man, arson, and the other meaning lying place or bed, koita. Arsenokoitai. It doesn't exist in any Greek literature before Paul. So Paul is inventing a word that means a man who lies in a bed with a man. And I think incredibly tellingly, these two words, arson and coiter, they are the two exact words that were used at that time in the Greek translation of Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13 that we looked at earlier. In other words, Paul has the verses about homosexual practice from Leviticus in mind, and he then applies them to his context and by implication to our context today. So where does that leave us so far? We've looked at all the explicit references to homosexuality in the Bible. There's not many of them, but there are some. And there seems to be an unambiguous view that all of them reject homosexual sex. Some people try and argue it differently for committed same-sex partnerships, but I've got to say, as I have wrestled with all the arguments, personally, I do not find those arguments convincing. And actually, many people who affirm same-sex practice would actually agree with me on this. So take the renowned theologian, Walter Wink. Uh, Walter Wink, he is um, fully affirming of homosexual sex. And he writes this. He says, Efforts to twist the text to mean what it clearly does not say are deplorable. Simply put, the Bible is negative towards same-sex behavior, and there's no getting around it. The issue is precisely what weight that judgment should have in the ethics of Christian life. And really that is the big question. And it's the question we're going to try and turn to now. Because I think there are three broader, genuine arguments that are often given to overturn the specific negative view of these individual verses about homosexuality. And so we're going to look at each of those in turn briefly. The first argument that's used is, the, is what I've called the biblical panorama argument. The biblical panorama argument. Now, this argument says 
that whilst there are these specific verses, that the broader sweep of the Bible, it's all about love. You know, Michael, at the start of our service, declared God is love. That's from the Bible. The Bible is all about love. You know, from the love of God in creation in Genesis, right through to the love of God in the new creation, and that that love is able to be seen in human love, which can be same-sex love, as well as love between male and female. But the thing is, what we need to see is not simply a biblical panorama of love, but rather how a biblical panorama of sex fits into that biblical panorama of love. I mean, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, the argument would go that when there was no suitable helper for Adam, Genesis 2.18 up there on the screen, what Adam needed was not necessarily a woman, but he just needed another human to be in a love relationship with. So the argument will go, it's, just, it's, it's Eve's humanity, not her gender, that made her suitable for Adam. However, the key problem is this. In the Hebrew, the word that's translated suitable is konegdo. And again, it's made up of two words, ke, which means like, and neged, which means opposite. So it literally means like, opposite him. In other words, what makes Eve suitable is not just that she is like Adam, another human, but that she is also like opposite him, that she's different to him as well. She is female, he's male. And it's not just about Adam and Eve, because soon after that verse, we get the verse that we looked at more last Sunday, Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So this biblical panorama of sex throughout the Bible, it is always seen in the context of marriage between husband and and wife. Second broader argument that's sometimes used is what I've called the comparison argument. And this argument goes something like this. It says there are other ethical issues where Christians have changed their mind over time, such as a Christian's view on the role of women or a Christian's view on slavery. You know, take most famously here at HTC slavery. You know, it took Wilberforce, took the Clapham sect to show Christians, to show wider society how slavery was a bad thing in opposition to the views of many Christians of the day. Surely, the argument goes, surely we should just compare the issue of homosexuality now to all those other issues like slavery and say the church has got it wrong in the past on those other things and it's done it again. We've got it wrong with homosexuality, we now need to be affirming of homosexual practice. However, there are some big differences. So in the areas of women in leadership and the areas of slavery, there is within the Bible all sorts of examples of women in positions of leadership and examples of where slavery is discouraged. More to the point, the Bible's stance on women and on slavery, it always looks liberating compared to the broader cultural context in which the Bible was written. Whereas the stance of the Bible on homosexual practice, it's not more liberating, it's more conservative than the cultural context in which it's written. There is this trajectory within the Bible which encourages the changes that we have seen in how women in leadership and slavery are viewed. But I do not think that that is the case with homosexuality. There is a consistent position from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There's no trajectory to encourage a change of view. So the comparison argument doesn't seem to work either. 
And then the third argument is the, what I've called the experience argument. That whilst Scripture seems clearly against homosexual practice, the powerful experience of many gay people who testify to knowing God's blessing and the work of the Holy Spirit in their loving same-sex relationships, that experience justifies overturning what Scripture teaches. So to give you a recent example of this argument, it would be the fantastically talented Vicky Beeching. Vicky Beeching was a, a, a um, big worship leader at, at big Christian conferences and churches here and in the U.S., And in her autobiography, she, with with wonderful honesty, describes her battle to reconcile her same-sex orientation with the teaching of the Bible. And she says what happened is over time she shifted in her view so that she has come to see same-sex sexual practice as permissible. And she talks in her book of how the defining moment for her was looking at the book of Acts. Looking at the book of Acts and seeing how the Jewish believers, they came to see that the Gentile, non-Jewish believers, those believers in Jesus, they were clean spiritually, just like Jewish believers. And as these Jewish believers came to see this of these Gentile believers, they came to see this because of seeing the experience of God at work in Gentile people. But, in this incident of the Gentile believers coming to know Jesus in Acts that Vicky Beeching's referring to, where in essence she's comparing, she's saying Jewish believers, Gentile believers, heterosexual people, homosexual people. It is hugely significant what takes place. So yes, in the book of Acts, these Gentile believers in Jesus, they are welcomed into the Christian community on an equal footing with the Jewish believers. So there was nothing unclean about them, Just as those of homosexual orientation should be totally on an equal footing to those of heterosexual orientation in the church today. The Apostle Peter, they give you one verse, Acts 15 verse 19. He says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And we need to think through exactly the same issue for those who are turning to God who are homosexually oriented to not make it difficult for them. But what does Peter say in the very next verse in Acts 15? He also gives the Gentiles four guidelines on how they should live. And one of the four is that they should abstain from sexual immorality, that pornea word that we looked at last week. And when you look at these four things that Peter says in Acts 15, that the four things, they are all linked to the four headings in Leviticus 17 and 18, which is the holiness code bit which discourages homosexual practice. So just because we feel we experience God at work in our life, it doesn't make something right. The reality is that just because we experience loving feelings, it doesn't follow that God approves of everything that we feel is an experience of love. The fact that God is love, it means that God knows about love better than you and better than me. And therefore, we need to take God's steer as to how best we should express our love for one another. So where have we got to? Try to go through those three broader arguments, and I don't think any of them have a case to overturn the traditional view 
on homosexual practice. Now, I am aware that I have given a lot of information, some of it pretty challenging, most of it at odds with the predominant views in our culture today. So if you, want, if, you, if, you like, if you want a summary of everything that I've said so far, let me tell you my summary, one thing I'm against and one thing I'm for as I've studied the Bible on this. At its simplest, I am against all forms of homophobia and I am for sex in marriage between husband and a wife. Now to finish... What I want to try and do is to present more positively some thoughts on how it is possible for all of us, particularly those who are same-sex attracted, how it is possible to affirm that God is not a killjoy, but that God is a loving Heavenly Father who wants what is best for us, even in this area of sex and sexuality, if the only right context for sex is in marriage between husband and wife. How can that be a view of a perfect, loving, Heavenly Father? Um, up here is a picture of, um, my f- that my five-year-old daughter Hope did uh, at school this week. I was very proud of it until I read what she'd written. And you can probably read it there. She said, I feel pissed at the beach. Um, now, what's going on there? Has she wet herself on the beach? Has she been ta- drinking too many cocktails on the beach? What's going on? Little strange, until you come to see the whole picture. The teachers actually translated what Hope was trying to write. Not, I feel pissed at the beach, but I feel peace at the beach which is much more a good, positive message written as part of Global Peace Week. Now, similarly, I hope that this final third of the talk will help us see the whole picture, to help us see why there is a good, positive message in the Christian gospel for all followers of Jesus, whether heterosexual or homosexual in orientation. So let's do the last section, the pastoral implications. Five elements of the whole picture. Number one, the goodness of God. The goodness of God. It is not enough just to do what I've just done and just explain what the Bible says about homosexuality. I, we, we all actually need to explain why the Bible says it. To show that God is good, to show he's rational. And when God says no to something, he is saying a much bigger yes to something else. And the much bigger yes is the Bible's view of marriage and sexuality that we looked at last Sunday. How all of us, through the outworking of our sexuality, every single one of us can point beyond ourselves to the love of God shown in Christ. Fundamentally, you and I, we are the objects of the greatest love story ever told. As I said last week, human marriage, it is a picture, a visual picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. It's a visual picture of the, between Jesus and the church. It's also a temporary picture. Because as we said last Sunday, there is no marriage in heaven other than our marriage to Jesus. And so right now, whoever we are, whoever we are, whether we are homosexual or heterosexual in orientation, every single one of us can point to the glory of the gospel, whether we're married or single. Uh, Sam Albury, who's a, a pastor, he's himself same-sex attracted and celibate, he writes this. He says, if marriage points to the shape of the gospel, that uniting of Jesus and a Christian, if marriage points to the shape of the gospel, then singleness points to the sufficiency of the gospel, for this union with Christ is the only marriage we truly need. 
It's the only marriage we truly need because it's the only marriage that will exist and last for eternity. Second thing, the family of believers. Ed Shaw is another Christian pastor who's same-sex attracted. He writes this. He says, when church feels like a family, I can cope with not ever having my own partner and children. When it hasn't worked is when I've struggled most. The same-sex attracted Christians I've met who are suffering most are those in churches that haven't grasped this at all and that don't even notice these individuals. Primarily, family, as a Christian, does not equal mum, dad, and 2.4 children, or four children in my case. Primarily, family equals church. Family equals church, the family of God, the family of Christian believers. As humans, we do not need sex, but we do need intimacy. And God's answer to the problem of human loneliness is not just the sexual intimacy of marriage, but it is also the community of the church. And so at HTC, we need to work hard at this, and I think we need to work a lot harder than we have been. That we don't just promote and protect marriage, but that we also promote and protect friendships. Whether it's formally through connect groups, through hubs like Tim's been speaking a bit about over the last few weeks, whether it's informally as part of our culture, making sure that HTC is a place of of healthy affection, whether it's a place where we're encouraging intentional community living so deep friendships can form, whether it's a place where married people are inviting singles into their families and singles are inviting marriage into their communities, it needs to be a place where we are encouraging every one of us to be part of the family of believers, the church. Third thing, the positives of singleness. After my talk last week, I've had loads of great conversations with various people over the course of the week, but I'm just struck by two conversations with single people. Uh, One person uh, said that as a single person, she'd recently read Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, and she said it had made them delighted to be single. She said it was absolutely wonderful. Reading that book made her happier than ever to be single. Marriage sounded so tough. Another person came to talk to me after, after the talk last week, and they said, thank you so much, but can you say more about the positives of being single? Please challenge us who are single. Challenge us not to waste our lives. Now, I know that there are many people here who feel the deep pain of unwanted singleness. And that is both people who are heterosexual and people that are homosexual. And I want to say, particularly to those people here who are same-sex attracted, and you are currently wrestling with your singleness, I want to say, we think you are heroes. We think you're heroes. We want to support you as best as we can at HTC. We want to walk with you in your challenges. And the most important first step is that you don't walk those challenges alone. Please talk to someone. Talk to someone, whether that is your connect group leader, whether that's me, whether it's one of the other associate ministers. But in the midst of recognizing the pain and the challenges of singleness, I want to recognize the positives of singleness too. Singleness, the Bible says singleness is not just a premarital state. Singleness is not second best. 
It is, as I referenced in 1 Corinthians 7 last week, it is the relational status that means that you are most able to live your life in undivided devotion to the Lord and do things for God that those of us who are married could never be able to do. So please, can I encourage you, those of you who are single here, whether you're homosexual or heterosexual in orientation, can I encourage you, please be a beautiful witness to us all of the way that we will all be in eternity, in the new creation. Fourth thing, the centrality of Jesus. Intentionally, I haven't yet referred directly to anything Jesus said or did on the subject of homosexuality. But I want to do that now. First, look at Jesus' life. Jesus was the most fully human person to have ever walked this earth, and yet he never had sex. So to say that sex is an essential part of being a human is to deny who Jesus is. Secondly, in terms of Jesus' lips, what Jesus said and taught, Jesus was not neutral when it comes to sex. Jesus taught that sex outside of the context of marriage is sinful. Matthew 15, 19 and 20. Jesus taught that when we sin sexually, we don't just sin sexually in our actions, but we can sin sexually in our lustful thoughts too. Matthew 5, verse 28. Jesus taught that the only alternative to faithfulness in marriage was celibacy outside of marriage. Matthew 19, 10 to 12. And most relevant of all to tonight's subject, in speaking about marriage, Jesus joins two verses from Genesis 1 and 2 together. And it's going to come up on the screen. I'd love you to look at this. I think this is key. This is Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. I think they're crucial in understanding Jesus' view on this. This is what happens. Verse 4. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And just as you look up at that passage, I'd love you just to see how Jesus, how he joins the affirmation of humanity as male and female, that's Genesis 1.27, with the affirmation of exclusive uniting in marriage in Genesis 2.24. Those two bits he quotes. He's joining there, affirming humanity as male and female, and affirming exclusive uniting in marriage. Now, if marriage could be between two people of the same sex, there would have been no need and no reason for Jesus to quote that first bit that the Creator made them male and female. Jesus joins the two together. He says marriage, which is the place of sex, that is between male and female. And so I do not think that we can reject the traditional view of the place for sex without also rejecting Jesus' teaching on the subject. Let me quote Sam Albury again. He writes this. He says, We believe what we believe about marriage and sexuality because we believe what we believe about Jesus. If someone wants me to abandon my view of marriage, they must first persuade me to abandon my view of Christ. So Jesus' life, Jesus' lips, and Jesus' love. Jesus' love. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 
Uh, Jesus, you probably remember, he offers the highest standards for sexual ethics possible. Jesus says, if you commit adultery, not just you commit adultery, if you commit adultery in your heart, he says, gouge out your eye, chop off your hand. It is the highest standard of sexual ethics that has ever been taught. He teaches the same standard to us all, whatever our sexual orientation. He challenges both our actions, but also our heart's desires. And as a result of Jesus' teaching so high, we recognize that all of us, we are fallen in this area of sexuality. We all have disordered desires. I do, and you do. And yet, this same Jesus, this Jesus that teaches such a high sexual ethic... What happens? He finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he comes off the mountain, and he starts caring for those on the margins of society. He loves them, and they love him back, and they long to be with him. Jesus, he is known as the friend of sinners. And that's me. And it's you. And so to all of us, heterosexual or homosexual in orientation, Jesus' invitation to us is one of restoration. Jesus says to us, he says, come, come and find life in him. And life in him is about being Jesus' disciple. It's about Jesus discipling us, including in the area of our sexuality. And so to finish, let's finish with this invitation from Jesus. The invitation from Jesus is exactly the same to every single one of us. Jesus says, Matthew 16, 24, he says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus' main message to us Our main message here at HTC is to find life in Jesus. To find life in Jesus, what does Jesus say? All of us, we are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. There is a cost in discipleship. That cost is going to look different for each and every one of us. Following Jesus, it always involves personal sacrifice. Now, I would not deny that for the homosexually oriented person, that cost can feel very, very big. And the only way that that can be overcome is to realize that the benefits of life with Jesus, they're even bigger. The benefits of life with Jesus, they are even bigger than the costs. As we finish, listen to another quote from Sam Albury. It's quite a long quote, but I think it's actually, it's just, it's helpful for all of us. It's a comfort, it's a challenge to every single one of us. This is what he says. I'm going to finish with this. It's quite a long quote. Sam Albury writes this. He says, homosexuality is an issue I have battled with my entire Christian life. It took a long time to admit to myself, longer to admit to others, and even longer to see something of God's good purposes through it all. I have felt increasingly concerned that many of us Bible-believing Christians are losing confidence in the gospel. We're not always convinced it really is good news for gay people. 
The Bible is consistent in prohibiting homosexual practice. As someone who experiences homosexual feelings, this is not always an easy word to hear. It has sometimes been very painful to come to terms with what the Bible says. There have been times of acute temptation and longing, times when I have been in love. But however much we have to leave behind, we are never left out of pocket. Whatever is given up, Jesus replaces in godly kind and greater measure. No one who leaves will fail to receive, and the returns are extraordinary a hundredfold. What we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. If the costs are great, the rewards are even greater, even in this life. For myself, these include a wonderful depth of friendship God has given me with many brothers and sisters, the opportunities of singleness, the privilege of a wide-ranging ministry, and the community of a wonderful church family. But greater than any of these things is the opportunity that any complex and difficult situation presents us with to learn the all-sufficiency of Christ. Learning that fullness of life and joy is in him and his service and nowhere else. There's a huge amount to say on this issue. But the main point is this. The moment you think following Jesus will be a poor deal for someone, you call Jesus a liar. Discipleship is not always easy. Leaving anything cherished behind is profoundly hard. But Jesus is always worth it. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for each person here. Lord, there's been so much. Please help each person here to process all that I've been saying. Father, thank you that you invite every single one of us into your family through Jesus' death by the power of your Spirit. Jesus, thank you that whoever loses their life for you will save it. And so we dare to pray that you would help each one of us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow you. Lord God, I thank you particularly for each person here who is same-sex oriented and attracted. Thank you that you love them. And Lord, I pray that they would know the true intimacy and love of the church family. And I pray that they might know that following you is indeed worth it. Lord Jesus, would you bless all of us tonight. 
For your glory we pray. Amen.